1: Ladies and gentlemen. gentlemen,
2: Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. Two producers this week, Patrick Antonetti and Molly Nugent, and two guests. First up, Jim Ross. If you are a uh, wrestling fan, he does not really need an introduction. If you are not, he is one of the iconic voices of sports entertainment, one of the iconic voices of pro wrestling. He currently calls All Elite Wrestling, that's A-E-W, On uh, Turner Sports TNT every Wednesday at 8 p.m. He's also the co-host of one of the biggest wrestling podcasts out there, Grilling JR. That is with uh, Conrad Thompson and his wrestling dynasty. We get into all sorts of stuff about how JR approaches his new job at AEW, what he thinks the broadcasting style is, what the difference is. um, And just sort of how AEW approaches broadcasting versus the WWE and all sorts of other stuff in terms of why guys like Chris Jericho have such awesome promos, how much JR knows is coming down the pike. I think you'll really, really enjoy it. Jim Ross doesn't really need uh, any help other than to make sure the record button is on. He is followed by Joan Neeson, who was my former colleague at Sports Illustrated and was on this podcast for episode 72 when she was part of the group of Sports Illustrated staffers who were let go by the maven. Uh, that the uh, startup company that uh, leased Sports Illustrated's media operations from the Authentic Brands Group, and I would argue continues to sort of grind one of the great publications into the ground. And uh, we were going to have some of those people back uh, from that episode just to sort of check in on how things are after life after SI. And so Joan and I talked about the challenging challenges, I should say, of freelancing after being let go, what the job market's been for her, uh, how she thinks, uh, how she sees things happening uh, at Sports Illustrated right now and then a little bit of college football talk, which is Joan's specialty and what it's been like to watch the games uh, the last couple months as opposed to being at games. So Jim Ross, uh, to start for about 40 minutes or so, followed by Joe Neeson, both coming up on the sports media podcast.
3: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news,
2: you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. All right, as I said at the top, uh, Jim Ross, especially if you are someone who's watched any kind of pro wrestling in the last couple of decades, does not really need much of an introduction. He's one of the iconic voices of pro wrestling. He currently calls All Elite Wrestling, better known as AEW, on TNT every Wednesday, 8 p.m. Eastern. He's also a senior advisor with that promotion. Jim Ross is the co-host of the popular podcast, Grilling JR. People who listen to this podcast know that Conrad Thompson has been on here many times, continuing to build his mansion in Alabama. Jim also has a new book coming out next February. We'll get into that a little bit. And uh, he is, of course, a food impresario. Head to jrbbq.com for JR's original barbecue sauce, as well as the main event mustard and other products. And I am pleased to welcome Jim Ross to the Sports Media Podcast. Jim, how are things today?
1: Things are good, Richard. Life couldn't be better. Good to, Good to talk to you again.
2: Uh, very much uh, you making a return visit and here's where I want to start when I talked to you last time Jim you were really just at the cusp of um, of sort of the AEW journey it had not been on yet and um, you had some details but not all now you're in the middle of it I think certainly in terms of critical praise the um, the promotion has been great ratings as you know you're an old hand here viewership can go up viewership can go down but I thought you guys have had an incredible launch so first off, because um, I think people are interested in this, as detailed as you can, what is your work week like for AEW from um, from research to being on site to whatever else comes up during a given week?
1: Well, I try to uh, arrange to leave home on Tuesday mornings. So I, leaving home means leaving Norman and uh, going to the Oklahoma City Airport, and catching a flight that normally has to connect, which is the... Unfortunate part of that whole transaction. Uh, American Airlines has not been very kind to me lately, so uh, it's just a sad situation. But nonetheless, uh, and if anybody knows a great airline that rarely makes mistakes, makes they don't make human errors, please let me know. I'm on Twitter at jrsbbq. I'd appreciate it. Uh, so then I I get to the city, the uh, city we're, we're we're doing our show in on uh, Tuesday. Generally, uh, try to shoot for early afternoon, mid-afternoon at the latest. Tuesday nights, we have a production meeting at the venue. Uh, uh, t- after after the production meeting, uh, a few of us usually kind of congregate and go get grab a bite to eat and talk about what we've just discussed. Uh, then on Wednesday, it's really uh, kind of a prep day to now that we have a show, now that we everybody's signed off on it, now I can go back and start looking at specific things. Uh, Alex Marvez helps us a lot there with the background information, which is invaluable, quite frankly. Alex is an old hand at doing prep from his days uh, doing uh, well, as a writer and, of course, as a broadcaster now on Sirius XM. So uh, that's that. And then we go. To, I go to the arena about one o'clock on game day, uh, and that's coincidentally tied to when catering opens. You know, that's so got, got to be totally transparent here. And then, uh, spend the afternoon. There, there's always a few tweaks in the show. So, you know, you, 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 interface with your partner. You talk to some of the talents. Sometimes the talents want to talk to you. Uh, you know, I'm a big guy about playing it forward. I like to do a little coaching, coaching up a little bit. I enjoy that aspect of my job as much as anything I'm doing. Uh, so then we do our show and, uh, you know, and, 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 and that's a two hour deal. And I stay and watch the, uh, the, the other matches, the, the dark matches and, uh, you know, just to learn and to see what, how guys are progressing. You know, we're in a, we have a very young roster, much like a expansion football club. We, we're still trying to, we're still waiting to see how some people are going to navigate their journey. And if their journey can take them to a location that will get us all to that, uh, a proverbial promised land of income, increased income. Uh, so that, well, that's a p- part of that, that Wednesday process is that I get home on Thursday, generally in the afternoon, again, thanks to connecting flights as a rule. And, uh, and then I do things that normal people do. I go to the cleaners, I go to the grocery shop, everybody here. I'm, it's just OJR JR here. So I haven't, I got a housekeeper that comes once a week. Uh, but she didn't buy my groceries and things like that. Go make, go to the cleaners for me. I guess she could, but some of those things I like doing, I see, see people get out and about. And then, you know, I try to leave the weekends in the fall for football. Cause I'm a, you know, I'm a, my, my plans right now are, you know, I got a great plan setting up, man. This is a dream deal. If I can pull this off, the game plan right now is to go to Atlanta on the 27th or 28th and to, uh, Go to the OU LSU game and the dome there, and then take the first, take the first flight out on Sunday morning to Jacksonville and go to the Jaguars and the Colts game in the owner's box. And then on Monday, do some media for the show in Jacksonville, Wednesday night. Then on Tuesday is New Year's Eve. Uh, we're going to have a production meeting and we'll also have, I uh, hear a little get together. Uh, and then on Wednesday, January first, is our show in, in this in the amphitheater there, which is kind of a unique experience. And then on Tuesday, uh, Thursday, uh, I'm thinking of staying over one more day and going to the Gator Bowl. I got old dog in the hunt, but what the hell I'm there and it's football and I'm, you know the the cons on the stadium that they're playing in, so why not? Jim, this is still obviously very, very new
2: regarding broadcasting, and you are still trying to find your rhythm with your partners. You know Tony Schiavone for a long time, but you understand there's a rhythm and a cadence to this. So, what I want to ask is: is there an AEW style of broadcasting yet, or is that still a work in progress? Is that still an evolution?
1: I think we're still in, on a journey, Richard. I don't think we're there yet. Uh, I like what we do. You know, I, I pushed really, really aggressively to hire Tony Schiavone to join our team. Because it was inevitable that for whatever reason, and I can't think of a good one. Uh, but the, uh, the trend in pro wrestling has been three-man teams by and large. They're an exception to the rule. I get that, but it seems like the three-man team has kind of got, uh, kind of the uh, traditional or the trendy thing. So it seemed that we were unable to do a three-man team. So I just thought that Tony would be an amazing addition. Because his knowledge, product knowledge, you can't, you can't buy product knowledge, you got to develop it. You got to earn it and experience it. And he's a bright guy and he loves what he loves the, 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 the product he's gotten more, he had that long absence. He, he didn't watch wrestling rest of for damn near 20 years. He was done, totally done. He wasn't a newsletter guy. He wasn't a podcast guy. He was done. Uh, hell he was, uh, I know he, one of his favorite jobs he told me he was doing was as, as a barista, I don't think, what the hell, you know, this guy's a great broadcaster and he's got a lot to offer. So then all of a sudden, as we, the aforementioned Conrad, the pod father, uh, started getting Tony on, uh, got, got, they started a podcast, very successful, comes out on Wednesdays and mine comes out on Thursdays. And we talk about our show occasionally, just a little drop in, try not to be abrasive with it or intrusive, but. Just a reminder, if you want to, because we talk about AEW on our podcast to some degree. So he got he got revitalized. So in a play by play role, in a color role, in a studio role, in ring interview role. There's not anything where you hold him mic that. Shivani isn't good at, and he's not a kid. He's not going to you know he's, he he knows that he knows how to travel. That's a big issue, man. A lot of people always take that travel for granted. Traveling is the shits it sucks. It is horrible. You know, do you check a bag? Do you not check a bag? What is this? You want an aisle seat? You want a window seat? You want, all I know is if I'm wearing my hat on airplane, it, the hat somehow is, has this thought cloud above it saying, come wake up Jr. And he'll sign something or come wake me up and I'll take a picture with you. I'd love to, it'll say that, you know, but it's just, it's just hard. Uh, the travels hard. And not because of that. Don't get me wrong. I'm not bullshitting anybody. But lateness, you know, I'm not even worried about turbulence anymore. You're going to go, you're going to go. But, God damn, can we just get there? Can we just get to where we're crashing on time? How about that? (laughs)
2: Um, You know, again, I know this is still relatively new. And you've been away from WWE for a little bit. But as best as you can sort of evaluate it, how is what AEW is doing different than what the WWE does. I, th-
1: I think their issue may be, and it's only my opinion. And of course, uh, you know, that anytime I say anything that isn't hearts and flowers regarding my, my old team, that I'm being bitter and caustic. Uh, so let that re- stand, uh, re- record be uh, known. Uh, I think sometimes they overproduce and then they take away or reduce, maybe a better word, Restrict, maybe a better word. I don't know. Uh, the talents own creativity. No one knows themselves better than they do, and uh, so I think that uh, I just broke all of Vince's rules. I used about three different pronouns. So, but that's the deal. It, it, I think they sometimes talents lose hope or confidence that they can that they do have a feel for their own character, their own personality, because it's obvious that it, over the annals of time. In the in recent years, Attitude Era years, the Hogan Era years, all this other stuff. Any era, uh, you know, the guys that were over the most seemingly were natural extensions of their own personality. And I think in WWE sometimes uh, the natural extension of personalities are not as freely uh, uh, exhibited as they should be. In AEW, we have no writers. So there's nobody to influence promos. For example, uh, uh, there's no one that, here's someone, here's my copy. Let me see what you're going to say. Let me vet your promo. Yeah. Bullshit. Come on. It's pro wrestling. Don't overthink this thing, man. You hire people because they're alpha males, person, alpha personalities. I should say, uh, they're, they're aggressive or they're a- outgoing or they're what they want to perform. Well, give them the opportunity to do that. Let's see what creativity they have. If they are squeezed out of them, then sometimes it doesn't grow back real well. So I think that the thing at AEW right now is that there's direction. Don't get me wrong. It's, it's not a rudder to ship. There's direction. There's topics, but you get bullet points of things that you, they would like for you to include in your promo and work it in organically and naturally in a conversation form. And I think that we've had some, you know, uh, Cody's promo work has been excellent. Uh and you know he collects his thoughts and jots his notes down and 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 has a roadmap for where he wants to go. Chris Jericho, same way. Uh oh, I saw Pac do an interview the other day uh with uh Jen Decker, and uh he was ex- excellent. And I didn't realize how good he could be. And there was no rider in sight. He knew the bullet points, he knew how he felt realistic, how he felt as Pac in that character and that's what he relayed and it, and it works. So, you know, I, I think that's big, one of the big things, Richard, is that we're the lack of writers can be a blessing or a curse. I get all that. And I'm not saying all writers are bad, but that by any stretch, but when you're inundated with with creative input from people that, that you perceive can feel your character and understand wh- where this thing should go, uh, in order to do that, they have to have extensive product knowledge, and be an ongoing student of the game. I think we have that environment in AEW, but I'm not sure that it exists to that description in WWE these days. I'm glad you brought up uh, promos, Jim,
2: because I wanted to um, ask you about that. To me, the person who is doing the best promo work right now in any production is Chris Jericho. His uh, Le Champion stuff is just it's unbelievable. It's just the guy's ability to reinvent himself is absolutely incredible. So I wanted to ask you, like, what, um, how much do you know regarding someone like Jericho's promo? How much do you know what's coming down the pike? Or is what he is doing sort of totally a surprise or totally organic to
1: you as it is to the audience? I have no earthly idea what he's going to say. None. Now I know where we're headed. I know know, it doesn't take Einstein to figure out that, uh, you know, what direction we're traveling. You know, we know that we're, we're headed to a showdown at some point, probably February common sense. Hello. I'm not giving anything away here, but the next big pay-per-views in February. And if I were booking this thing, as the, a lot of guys like to say now, uh, I would certainly like to see uh, Moxley and Jericho for the title. So if we're headed that direction, you know where we're, we know we're going east, north, south, whatever. But we don't know the maybe the vehicle that we're traveling in. We might not know the routing that we're going to be taking today. And so that's the great thing about this whole deal. I said that for years about uh, uh, when Lawler and I worked together all those years in WWE. I would I would venture to say that probably 80 percent of the time we didn't know the. Refined finish of any match, and we'd find out here, there, and yon, or during the day, or somebody's talking, or whatever, or somebody come up to ask Lauder a question about a spot or something. But you know, we never, uh, we never, we never wanted that information because it did affect your spontan- spontaneity. It did affect your presentation. You're going to get great effort from us. We're going to give you the passion if it's there. But I can't be singing country music to rap songs. We all got to get on the same page here. So you make your great music, and I'll try to give you a lyric that's commensurate to what we're hearing, or seeing more specifically.
3: You, uh, JR, one of the things that I appreciate uh, about you is the same thing I appreciate about Hubie Brown, who does basketball, Vern Lundquist does college football and golf, and any broadcaster who's in their late 60s, 70s, or 80s. The ones who stick around, in my opinion, are the ones who, um, how do I sort of phrase this, They, 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 they have a quest for knowledge that continues, that even if they have the reputation of being, like, a master broadcaster, they don't rest on that. They're always trying to learn. They're always trying to stay current, at least in terms of their information. And I feel you have that in addition to uh, the people in, like, more traditional sports roles, like I I mentioned, Hubie and Vern. Um, Do you feel like, like, is that one of the things you think that sort of keeps you going, that at 67, uh, there's still more to learn? There's still more to broadcast? There's still sort of new things every day that get your mind
1: excited. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, being around this roster at AEW, uh, has given me, uh, much needed invigoration. Uh, I get my big dose my big shot of enthusiasm every week. when I see these around these guys, they're so damn young. Uh, it's just amazing. The thing about being 67 and being in a young man's business, that I hearken back and I utilize guys like, uh, when I was a kid, the guys that influenced me big time, you know, uh, Ray Scott, I thought was amazing. And the, the, the connection I had with Ray Scott was that Ray Scott was also a suffered Bell's palsy attacks. And, uh, uh, a lot of folks didn't even know that I found it out. It kind of bonded me with and but, but as a kid, uh, he said more with less words than anybody I'd ever heard. But it was tone, inflection, and timing. Okay, I learned that. Uh, Keith Jackson was not; was unabashedly unafraid to expose his southernness. And so many guys from the south are, are the southern roots, like Jim Nance. They don't want to sound southern. I get it. I'm not knocking the guys. But uh, I was not smart enough to do that. I was smart enough just to be myself. And uh, like I thought Keith Jackson was doing, and he was. I've. Had a vodka or two of them over the years and uh, what a guy and I love that was some great experiences and he knew my work. That was a cool thing about that man. I could have died right there and been a real happy old Oklahoma boy. Uh, he knew my, he was aware of my work. The slobber knocker guy, uh, you know, that, that, he knew slobber knocker, but I brought slobber knocker. What the hell is worth out of the, out of the old, you know, the heirloom storage bin and here, here we use it, but nonetheless, I, I've. I think we're we're hungry. There's uh, several things. Number one, I don't believe in comfort zones. I think a comfort zone is the worst thing you can do to yourself, but the, other than drug and alcohol abuse or being an idiot. Uh, but seriously, uh, uh, it just it just makes no it just it just makes no sense because you, if you stop growing, you, it's inevitable. You start dying because there's no neutral in our life. In my life, there's no neutral gear. There's no end on the on the steering thing. So I, I'm I'm big on the uh don't stay in your comfort zone too long because it will ruin you. If you're not getting better, you're getting worse. And I don't want to get worse. Secondly, uh the business is changing to where phraseologies and holes have the same moves I've called for years have new names. And it's and it's seemingly it's very important. For me to a, be able to identify those new names of the old maneuvers, many of which I've, I've, I've called for years to make sure that our youngest demographic, uh, seems to be more, uh, uh catered to as if they're not, uh, uh, you know, uh, entitled enough. So I, I don't know. I, I, I feel it's a challenge because I know that, look, Richard, we talked about this. I, I face this every day when I look my ugly ass in the mirror. I, I'm not, I don't need, I shouldn't even probably be on television, to be honest with you. You know, I don't have, I don't, I don't, my little, I don't fit the uh, sports center anchor, pretty little boy, you know, uh, talk banner talk stuff. Uh, I'm an old school guy. I got a Southern drawl. Uh, I got Bell's palsy had, and I can't smile. So you got a TV broadcaster with rosy red cheeks, a Southern accent that can't smile. Yeah. I want to audition that guy. It just doesn't happen. so I feel like sometimes uh, I live on in this job on borrowed time and I can't allow myself to fi- fall to my knees over a bad show or a bad segment or or bad match or whatever. I've got to be on my game as best I can and if I do have a fumble in the red zone, I got to make sure I, re- I get this next possession and I can and I'll capitalize on it. That's all you do. So sometimes you bust your ass out of fear, Jim. Your um, your
2: career arc actually uh, starts prior to social media, and now you are a wrestling broadcaster in the middle of a social media age. The good thing, the positive thing about all this is, of course, that you you know you can use your social media feeds, which you are uh, yours are very very big to promote stuff and to get the word out on what you're doing. The downside, of course, is that it gives people a direct line to you when it comes to criticism, when it comes to taking shots at you. So I'm curious in 2019, and how do you approach that? How do you handle uh, social media in an age where people can get directly to you?
1: I'm handling it better now than I have previously. Uh, I'm not real proud of how I've handled it at some points in time. I try to, if I respond now to a critic, I generally will respond with humor or an attempt at humor and not, de- you know, not demeaning them, but some trying to come up with some funny line to kind of break the ice here, because again, what are we really talking about? We're talking about a rest, a pro wrestling announcer, uh, who may have called a Tope suicido something else. Okay. Now, does that mean I need to turn my hall of fame ring in and. And uh, go sit in a corner for for a semester? What? Uh, so I, I I don't know. I, I, I handle it better now because I got a different philosophy about it. But in the past I've re- I've lashed back because sometimes things are just get, they get too personal. You know, when somebody tweets you and says, you know, I hope you get another fucking stroke. Well, first of all, Einstein, I didn't ever have a stroke. I have Bell's palsy. There's a difference. But why would you wish anyone in any walk of life that you, uh, that, t- t- that you hope they have a stroke. Are you kidding me? And and here's the thing. Here's what pisses me off about that. These idiots don't realize in their love of wrestling, wink, wink, it's a love of their self. It's the love of being noticed. It's their love of being somebody and getting somebody to notice them and acknowledge such. That's what that is. So I just – I just uh, – I, I I, I just block them, I but I don't block that many people, but I, I, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, can be a blessing or a curse quite frankly. But I, I'm a, I'm, I'm handling it better Richard, but I don't, you know, I'm like any other, I'm human. I'm human, man. I got feelings. I'm just a guy has a unique job, had a unique run, just a regular guy. That's really all it is. Uh, so when you go to the personal side of it and, and knock my health and wish me ill there, I don't really, I don't even want to respond to those. Uh, and I, I, try, I used to a little bit and it's it got me nowhere. And, but here's the thing. I have so many great followers on Twitter who love what I do and they love the interaction and they know I run my own Twitter. I don't have a, a hired guy to do that. Sean Creedle does my Facebook and Instagram, a great friend in Baltimore, but I don't, I don't do, and I help, I help out when, when I can, especially on Facebook occasionally. But all that's new to me, man. It's all new to me, so I'm uh, this whole this whole thing's a brand new journey. This whole long way from making you know uh, twenty five to forty dollars a day uh, hauling, farting smoky wrestlers around in my car, so I could make two cents a mile from all three of them, so I could pay my gas bill. Uh,
3: all right, the last two things I want to get to one, let's uh, want to talk just briefly about the podcast that you're doing with Conrad. When I had Conrad on. Um, I, I think I had him on either right when you guys started, or either right before you started. And the thing he told me was he believed that the Grilling Jr. podcast would ultimately be the most downloaded podcast in um, you know in his empire. He just he thought that you were the right fit at the right time. Some of that probably had to do with the fact that Bruce and Eric at the time were going back to working um, for the WWE and maybe their podcast would change a little bit. But I remember him being so optimistic uh, actually, I think it, this was very early on, and the numbers were really great early. And now, obviously, you guys have had a great run. I don't know what the downloads are right now, but I'm sure they're up from what Conrad told me a couple months ago. But my sense is, Jim, I can just hear your interaction with Conrad, and I hear the content on the podcast. One, it seems like you're really, really enjoying it. But two, I think you must know you guys have something special. It's, it's just really, I'm just saying this objectively to you, it just works. It works for me as a listener, and, you know, there's a couple hundred thousand of me.
1: Oh, thanks. I appreciate that, Richard. Well, you know, uh, Conrad's a, I tell everybody this all the time. You know, Conrad's the booker of this damn operation. I'm just a talent, a talent. Uh, and and he's the other talent. So I said, between us, by the way, we're the largest tag team podcaster team in America. We're the McGuire twins of podcasting, Conrad and I. So uh, we're, 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 we're doing well. He's brilliant, man. He's a great marketer. He's got a hell of a staff around him. Uh, you know, when I get my, uh, notes for a show, uh, we use, uh, Dave Meltzer's uh, work a lot, uh, and we use Wade Keller's work some as well. And so we have all the factual information, uh, historical information, not their not their rumor in any window, but actually the a rundown of the show, uh, and all kinds of stuff that we don't have to research. And a lot of those shows that I, we talk about, I was on. So I got a, somewhat of a decent knowledge of them. Uh, so that's there's that. The second thing, just on the personal side, you know, with my schedule as it was in WWE for all those years, I didn't have a lot of free time to sit and watch a show back, which is not cool. I get it. Uh, that's my lack of time management skills or just my schedule because it didn't seem like I had a lot of off days. And uh, not complaining, I loved every minute of it. Or I wouldn't have done it. Uh, Not the least of that long with that much passion. But boy, I I just think that uh, you know, the uh, chemistry was something that we had. You know, I don't know. We I can't. We we talk about it a lot. You know, two chubby, uh, fried food loving, southern football watching Son of guns. Right, that's us. And you know we're going to go to England in, in February. We're going to go to London, Manchester, and then up to Glasgow in February for three shows. And people want to hear our stuff and and live. I think we're pretty funny. We're just we're just we tell we're not we don't have a routine. We don't have a production meeting. You know, uh, he, Con, Conrad, Tony Schiavone, and I are doing a show in Huntsville, Alabama, in early February after a bunny Night Raw there in Huntsville or Monday Night Raw. How good does that slip after a uh, AEW show? On Wednesday night, we're going to a comedy club nearby and do a do a show. We did one before, and we got out of there at two in the morning. People just kept asking questions. They kept laughing, and for the for the comedy clubs, they kept buying booze and food. So everybody everybody won on that night. So, but we just got good chemistry.
2: Jim, when it comes to uh, your preparation for grilling Jr., um, I'm curious as to how that works um, because sometimes these are episodes or shows that happen twenty. 20- Five years or so. So does um, does Conrad provide you with some kind of research material? Um, do you do it on your own? Are you watching the shows? Uh, how does that work?
1: Well, that's the other great part about doing this show, the show, the format that we utilize. We, we are specifically focusing on one major event uh, in the annals of the wrestling business, preferably one that I had firsthand knowledge of, or I, act, i.e., being on the show as a broadcaster uh, or a producer, uh, whatever it may be, and so I get to go back and watch those shows again. And I was going to say earlier, I, I haven't, I haven't gone back and watched them, and so I'm going back and watching a show I may have broadcast in '88. Like say the Great American Bash '1988, for example, or Starcade '88, whatever it could be. Well, I was there. But I get to go back, i go back now and watch them on my little iPad. And, uh, I enjoy the hell out of it because I see what I wore and what this guy said, and that guy did, and, and I cringe at my own work as a rule. that's kind of the, that's kind of the, the running theme. I cringe at my shit. So, uh, but that's kind of fun, but Conrad comes up with all the topics. I don't, I don't, I told him, I said, it's good. I'm not going to restrain your creativity, retard your creativity whatsoever, my friend. Uh, you come up with the topic, I get them, I get them a few days in advance. I go start, you know, they, and it gives me, uh, notes. So we have the observers, uh, rundown of, uh, uh of a, of a show, uh, the torch rundown of a show, sometimes both. Uh, we talk about the news of the day at that time. So in other words, what else is going on in that period of time, historically within the business, uh, and that will be interesting to our audience. And so that's kind of how that works. So it's really a, it's a smooth operation. Uh, when he told me how we were going to do it, I quite frankly thought, and I don't know if I can make, I can make my part of that entertaining. Cause I've, not, I, I've forgotten what we did, but the problem is you got to go back and do some work. So that's what we're doing. And I appreciate your confidence on it. We have fun doing it that we don't rehearse. You, okay, can you say this, I'll say that, you know, that's how lot and I used to commentary, Heyman. Our, my best work with all my partners are guys, that didn't that were not high maintenance, uh, and ma- they had confidence in their creativity. You talked about Jericho earlier. You know, uh, Jericho's got a Jericho's got a match on Wednesday night with uh, uh, Jungle Boy, uh, uh, Jack Perry, Luke Perry's son. That will make Jungle Boy more of a star than anything Jungle Boy has ever experienced, because Jericho knows how to do it. And the crowd is ready for Jungle Boy to upset Chris Jericho in this ten-minute non-title match because the stage is set. So you know. So in other words, the babyface goes over at nine minutes and thirty seconds to the to the dismay of the heel and 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 the, and the surprise and shock of the fans. Is that what's going to happen? I don't know. I'm just saying that Jungle Boy Jack Perry will be a bigger star uh, because of Chris Jericho's creativity and the fact that Jericho has reinvented himself, as you pointed out. Uh, and that's going to be to everybody's benefit. And that's kind of how we're building this thing. You know, uh, you got, you got tent poles and Jericho's the main guy right now. He's the champion. He's the most experienced. He creates his own, he does his own creativity. You know, uh, like I said, uh, when he did all his promos, he, he may say, Hey, I may say this and the follow-up might be this. Okay. But I don't know what he's going to, you know, he don't give me a script because he don't have one. And I can't ask the writers for any because we don't have any
2: writers. Yeah, you've got some really great ten poles, man. You have some creative dudes who really, really are
1: good. Yeah, and, and they're in their they're creative, they're young, they're they, they're creative. They're young. They're they 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 feel refreshed. They feel like the restraints, if there were any, on were on them, they are been, they've been removed. Uh, so and the the, the to be honest with you, the rudder in the water, you know, and I see it in my own eyes, is Tony Khan, and, and he's the hardest working most enthusiastic, educated wrestling fan I've ever encountered in my entire life. And he's in his early thirties. He could tell me what I said in the match before Tony was born. He's watched all that stuff so many times. He has stuff memorized. He has amazing memory, highly intelligent. And his passion alone is one of the things that uh, make it fun to go to work because I've just never worked for anybody quite like him. I mean, he is demonstratively enthusiastic and gets loud and exciting. He's, he, and he's, he's infectious. So, uh, it's a different atmosphere. It's a different atmosphere. Richard, sorry, different atmosphere than the more structured. Uh, you know, it, it reminds me of how structured the old NFL was back in the day and then how the, when the AFL came in on the scene, how outlandish they seemed to be in the, the passing game and the offense and the uniform, the color schemes, all this other stuff. Uh, it was just amazing. So I kind of feel we're a little bit in that area where the, the traditional, the, the, you know, the, 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 the uh, established big dog in the yard is still going to be the big dog in the yard, which is great. The more successful WWE is the more successful all wrestling is. So it's always been that way. I think it will always be that way. So as long as they're doing well, I think all the rest of us can, can ride that tide to some degree and while we're at it, and most importantly, make our own way create our own fans because of what we do is different
2: oh, that's a pretty uh, interesting parallel with the AFL I'd not thought of that um, last one for me is you have a book coming out in 2020 uh, under the black hat uh, I'll put this one over from uh, Simon Schuster and Amazon you can pre-order now and that's basically it looks like a follow-up to your uh, to your previous book to your um, to your other autobiography, where I imagine you're probably late in this process, but where are you now in the sort of the book writing or book finishing editorial process? And what can readers expect from this
1: book? It picks up uh, where we left off, uh, basically, uh, in a in a chronological sense. It's a continuation of my autobiography, which has covered some amazing topics. Not because I'm writing about them because they happened and they were amazing and they still are in the, again, in the annals of sports, entertainment and pop culture and so forth. Uh, it covers my leave, my it covers three bouts of Bell's palsy and how that affected me mentally, physically, and professionally. It covers, uh, being taken off money, Night raw for no reason and put on Smackdown when I was told the night before that was not going to happen. Uh, it covers, uh. The attitude era It covers the XFL. It covers, you know, it covers, uh, the, the invasion angle, all those things. They're more contemporary, more topical now to some of the fans than say my run in mid South back in the day. Uh, it covers, unfortunately, I had to write about my wife's death and that was not easy. And, uh, I'm, uh, I have the reluctance of my days regarding my book surround the task of reading the, uh, doing the audio version and, and hearing it come out of my lips about her death. That's not going to be easy. So, uh, it goes through that. We get a little AEW on the end. I've had a selected group of friends read it who are unabashedly, uh, typical dicks, uh, and they have no problem telling me anytime I make any mistake in my life. The dating, the wrong woman, you're buying the wrong car, you know, whatever you're drinking the wrong vodka. Uh, but seriously, I, I just don't, uh, you know, I, I, it's, it was, it's a challenging to write, but the, we yesterday as we're recording this, uh, on Sunday afternoon, I had a conference call with my agent, Barry bloom. And, uh, and a, a lady a attorney for Simon and Schuster, because there were passages in the book that they needed to vet and they needed to understand better because I wrote about some pretty heavy duty stuff and it's not going to make a lot. It's not gonna make every, it's not a tell all, but it tells the truth. It tells the truth of my journey and what I experienced in it and how I fought my ass off to stay upright. And every time you get knocked down or humiliated or embarrassed, you have options, you have options. We all have options and I chose the option to get my fat ass up. And move forward. And I'm going to do that until they put that, does he, would say until I take that final dirt nap. I, ain't, I'm not, somebody said to me the other day, they said, JR, what are you going to, you you said, you, I read where you signed a three-year contract with, with AEW in the con family. I said, I sure did. Well, what are you going to do when that's up? I said, well, thanks for assuming I'll be alive. Number one, I like that theory. I said, here's what I would probably like to do. How about renew it and get another one? You know, Hey, look, if, if, uh, if, uh, our, our man, uh, 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 Ben Scully can do it until his eighties, that scares some young fans. Oh my God, that old bastard's thinking about doing this until his eighties. Well, let's don't get carried away. Kids lighten up Francis. It's not that it's not that bad, but I am, I'm, I'm going to work until I, until I believe I can't do the job. I, I asked Jerry Lawler one time. Uh, I said, King, uh, who just had his 70th birthday, looks great. Still wrestles. I said, uh, how long are you going to do this shit? Seeking of do this shit, meaning wrestle. He wrestles every weekend, seemingly. And I said, how long are you going to do this, man? I mean, you're wrestling, you're working out there like you're broken. I know you're not broke. He said, well, I'm going to do it until they quit booking me. And I thought about the simplicity of that answer and how it, how it really said all it needed to say, I'm going to do it until they quit booking me. And so he's going to let somebody, he's, he loves it so much. He might be willing to compromise a little bit of his, his matches because how can he be as good at 70 as you were at 30? I get that too. Right. It's what it makes sense. So he's uh that's what he said. I'm going to do it until he quit booking me. So I want to do this in some form. I think I could be a part of AEW for years to come because the knowledge that I have had been lucky enough to acquire work with the people I have Richard is unduplicated. Because some of those people that were teaching me are no longer alive. So I've learned from the best. And some of those fo- folks I learned from, those great teachers, are either in the, so much of their latter years of their life, and some are not even with us any longer. It's unref- un, uh, unprecedented. So I want to be able to use that knowledge to play it forward, not just to seek the next payday, the next payday. I'm not going to turn down paydays, but I, I, I want to leave the business better than I found it when I got into it in 1974. And right now it's a hell of a lot better than it used to be. It's much better than the old school. far so as pay and travel and things of that nature, especially at AEW. That's why I think when some of these contracts here, these various companies start coming up, we're going to have a brand new set of stories because I know people right now that, are, that would like to have that schedule and be able to earn a, a good living. Jim, what month does
3: the book come out in 2020?
1: It's going to come out, ironically, around WrestleMania time and around March. So, uh, yeah, around March.
3: All right. Well, check that out. Uh, For those who are listening, 2020 under the black hat. Uh, All right, Jim. I'm going to give your uh, credentials again. This will take a little bit of time. Uh, Jim Ross... Again, if you are a uh, even if you're not a pro wrestling fan, you probably recognize this voice on this podcast. Um, but he has basically called wrestling for multiple generations of fans. He is currently calling all Elite Wrestling (AEW) on TNT every Wednesday at 8 p.m. Uh, Eastern, which has uh, really, I think, just been a great production so far. He is the co-host of the popular podcast Grilling Jr. With the podfather, Conrad Thompson, as he says, Jim said. New book coming out around next year, uh, March, April. That would be Under the Black Hat. And then uh, he's got his food line still. Head to JR's BBQ, JRSBBQ.com, for, for uh, JR's original barbecue sauce, main event mustard, and all the new products that are part of uh Jim's family that uh, uh, continue to be put out there. Uh, listen, Jim, I'm uh, I'm a great admirer of your work over the years. I, I've really enjoyed it, and uh, you and Conrad have given me hours and hours of pleasure on Grilling Jr. I'm uh, I'm a totally devoted uh, fan to that. So keep it up. Keep taping on Thursday because you're far more pissed off on Thursdays, and I feel like that makes for a much better podcast.
1: I've heard that. I've heard that. I'll work on it. I'll, I'll, I'll get, get caffeineed caffeine up. Caffeine, caffeine up.
3: Yeah, Conrad is a genius because not only does he uh, have a, sort of a good research plan, his ability to pick what day you are feistiest is, is very smart on his part. Uh, but I wish you nothing but the best of success, and uh, I can't thank you enough today for giving me a little bit of time on the Sports Media Podcast.
1: You bet, buddy. Anytime, Richard. Appreciate your work. I enjoyed it very much.
2: Joe Neeson is a sports writer who recently worked for Sports Illustrated. Worked there for six years prior to that. She was at the Denver Post and Fox Sports. She was on episode 72 of this podcast in October as one of four former Sports Illustrated staffers who were let go by the Maven, the uh, Seattle-based startup that has leased Sports Illustrated's media operations from the Authentic Brands Group. And I wanted to have some of those people Back on every couple of months just to sort of check in with them and see how the market is. And Joe Neeson joins me from Chicago. Joan, welcome back.
4: Thanks for having me.
2: All right. So we last talked in October. We're now in December, so a couple months down the road. What um what has the um sort of your employment situation, the freelance market? What have things been like since we last talked, and and since you left SI?
4: Yeah, I've been sort of exploring the freelance market, kind of figuring out what's out there. And I've I've never really freelanced before. I've always been on staff somewhere, um, and just kind of you know had the paychecks roll in, worked with the same editor. Um, so it's definitely been interesting to have to market myself a little bit and you know reach out to people. But I've I've got some fun stuff in the works um, about a couple of sports I've I've never covered before. I'm a swimming story. And um, a couple other longer-term projects that are not quite finalized. Not everything is kind of signed on the dotted le- line yet, but um, should have some a couple of fun announcements. I am hoping early in the new year that might kind of cobble together sort of you know between everything a bit of a something close to a full-time job, which will be nice.
2: That's great. What um,
4: what I
2: guess I'm interested in sort of how much of a I don't know if mind shift is the right word, but yeah, how how do you recalibrate having sort of one singular employer where you get assignments as you did at Sports Illustrated, you know, here, we want you to do a story on, you know, this Clemson running back and you have this much time to do it. Here's when it's due. Uh, You know, you can, we take care of the travel, et cetera, et cetera, and go as opposed to maybe having multiple employers or trying to hustle to get stories. What's that sort of mentally, how do you recalibrate to sort of mentally get into that mindset? (laughs)
4: <laughs> that's a great question um I'm not sure if I have a good answer yet but um you know it's it's been a lot of like making checklists for me and keeping things straight in terms of just the details um it's what's what's hard but the hardest thing about it for me is that um I I knew what everyone wanted from me at Sports Illustrated I'd been there for almost six years I'd worked with I mean you know there's there's not it's not a huge place there aren't oodles of editors. I would worked with primarily the same four to five editors for most of my stories for the last six years. And you know what they want. You know how to communicate with them. And for me, it's more of a how much does someone expect you to communicate? Um, And what is, you know, what info do they want from you as you're going along in the process? And I found some people are fine just saying, here's the deadline, go forth, where it seems like others want to check in, want to know how things have been going. And that's more what I'm used to, but I don't ever want to be sending too many emails to someone I'm working on a freelance piece for, you know. So uh, so that's been the adjustment for me. Um, for me, too, it's also I, I'm not very good at selling myself at all. I, I, I'm i just terrible at it. So definitely had to work on that. And it's been funny. I've approached a couple people about things, and it they've said things to the extent of, oh, I didn't even know you'd be interested in that. Like, let's, let's go that direction. And so I've learned, you know, I should say what I want to do, and I should reach out. But it's easier said than done for me, at least. The, uh, you know,
2: I, I, one of the things that, you know, I, it's, I, it's been a while, but there was a time in my life, certainly when I lived in Buffalo, that uh, I was a freelance writer. And, you know, when you're younger, or in, that, in my case, much, much younger, and living in that city, it was kind of doable. I mean, you know, Buffalo was not New York City. the You could sort of be single and live there in a, you know, sort of affordable way. Have you, Gotten any kind of sense yet as to whether cobbling together a couple of different jobs can work long term in terms of, you know, being able to pay your bills, being able to live somewhere, or at least in your initial thought, this is, this ultimately has to be temporary and eventually I need a full time job.
4: You know, I'm not sure. Right now, it's been, and I still will be getting severance for a bit, full disclosure. So it's, it's definitely a, a nice cushion that I have right now. Um, I think there's a probably a way to do it. And I mean, you learn pretty quickly freelance wise that you, you're making more per story than you were probably making at Sports Illustrated when I was writing, you know, how many times a week, God only knows, you break it down per story, like salary divided by stories. But at the same time, it's harder to get stories and it's harder to get paid and you have to work to get paid and remind people sometimes. So for me, I think it's a near term kind of plan because I don't, if the perfect job presents itself tomorrow, I will take it. But I, I don't know what the perfect job is yet, I don't think. So until I figure that out and until I find somebody who wants to hire me for that, it's very feasible for me. And it, it's, I don't think it's too much of a stretch financially. Um because I was, I've been really lucky to have super consistent, gainful employment in this industry for the last, um, you know, eight, nine years. So that helps. But um, it's a hustle, and I think some of that is probably really exhausting to do forever. Um, and maybe, maybe that's wrong. Maybe it's just a, an adjustment for me. But um, we'll have to see. I'm, I'm kind of hoping to. I, I don't want to say too much beyond this, but I'm hoping to kind of crack into the book publishing world as well. And you know, see, I, I, again, I don't know how that will look money wise either, and where, you know, how much of a sort of stable footing that could give me as well. Um, nothing is sort of nothing again has been confirmed yet, or um, is you know signed on the dotted line. But that's one thing where that seems like if you have that kind of bedrock, and then you're freelancing around that, there might be a more feasible way to do it as well.
2: Joan, one of the things that's um, that's kind of interesting to me, and you are somebody who went through it, is. When you initially get laid off uh, from a place, and especially a big place like the one we worked at, and you're known in the industry as you are, you get this kind of like, I don't know, like uh, you're sort of almost looking at yourself uh, as a third person on social media, particularly on Twitter. People are saying, you know, hang in there and, you know, hire this person. And if you need any help, give me a ring kind of thing. You know, contact me. Um, But I'm wondering, like, Like, when that dies down, like, you know, a week or a couple weeks later, and now we're in December, uh, do people, like, do people in your—how do I sort of ask this? Did some of the people who were like, hey, you know, reach out to me, uh, I may have something, like, were they—did they follow up, or is that sort of just a social media phenomenon where in the moment people really—and genuinely so—people sort of feel bad for you, they want to help you, but— like everything else in this world, people move on very quickly.
4: It's definitely been a mix of both. Um, Some of the freelance stuff that I'm kind of getting started on right now was from people who reached out in those first days. And honestly, it was a little overwhelming to sort through all the people who'd reached out and um, all the ideas that were thrown at me and some of the more longer-term things. So it's it's still kind of playing out in that way that some of that is carried over to now December. Um, And... I certainly took a few interviews for things that I just decided not to do based on those early days um, as well. So that was like, like you said, it, it was a very, it was a lot and it was very flattering. Um, but it's not, you know no one, it's not like people are reaching out every day now offering, you know, ideas or maybe opportunities, but it has carried over. And I think it's a sad thing to say, but I think that's in part due to the fact that kind of sports illustrated and what's going on there remains in the news. And um, I think it also helped in a sense that I was laid off during the season of the sport that I cover because I've had a fair amount of people reach out on Twitter or even emails saying, you know, I miss your college football coverage. And, you know, maybe if I'd gotten laid off in April, that would not have been something that was even on people's minds. Um, So that's been kind of a funny consequence too. I I haven't actually um, written any college football since I was laid off, though. I think I will be freelancing the national championship game, which will be a lot of fun. So it'll be fun to dip back into that world a little bit, but, um, but, but yeah, it's, it's weird once the, once the buzz dies down and I don't regularly hang out with tons of sports writers, but I was actually, I was out of town this weekend. I was in DC and was at a gathering of a lot of sports writers, um, on Friday. And all of a sudden it was like, the buzz is back. We're all talking about this. And it was funny because I, I hadn't had a long conversation with, you know, peers about what's going on at sports illustrated and people saying, you know, you'll be fine. It'll all be okay. in in a while <laughs> I needed it. Yeah.
2: <laughs> The, well, it's interesting, by the way, uh, the irony of the story, you know, get laid off during your season, I guess is the, the, the you know, the, the takeaway uh, there. That's like, uh, that's actually pretty interesting there. Yeah. Um, all right. So you've had, you just mentioned, this is a good segue, Joan. You had a little bit of separation now um, from Sports Illustrated, and you've certainly seen what is going on there since you have left and since sort of your group was laid off. Uh, we've seen... Um, the copy desk basically dismantled. We've seen some editors and maybe this was known even a couple months before that, but editors have left this month. It, um, for those of us who care about the place, it's incredibly depressing at the same time. It's, you know, I think I've said this many times, it's kind of not my sports Illustrated anymore. The, the sports illustrated being run by the Maven group is not my SI. And so I wonder just you, you were there, um, more currently than I was. How do you view, now that you have a little bit of runway and separation, how do you view what's been happening under the Maven?
4: It's, it's just been really sad to see. Um, I'm not surprised by any of it, to be honest. It's kind of played out the way I expected. Um, like you mentioned, the copy desk is gone now. You know, Some of the people who were let go when I was let go but had to stay on for a bit to wrap up projects, I think most, if not all of them, are out the door now. and It's sort of I think we're getting to just Maven operations as they wanted, especially you know as of January 1st when the magazine is officially monthly, um, and you know even the biweekly is 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 gone. Um, it's it's been a shame to see just there's still a ton of great stories being published there. You know you have friends who are still there, as do I, and they're they're doing great work under the circumstances. I will admit that I don't often read them because I don't want to give clicks to the Maven. Um, I will go to Barnes and Noble and page through the, rec- the most recent Sports Illustrated issue to see my friend's stories um, has been my tactic, which is incredibly petty, but it's kind of my, I don't know, how I cope. Um, to me, it's kind of, I've avoided reading the Maven sites. I know there's been, you know, plenty of people circulating, whether on social media or just people who are, you know, big fans of Sports, sports Illustrated and sports writing, circulating, you know, stories that have run on the Maven that are certainly not, you know, up to the standards that Sports Illustrated set for the the previous several decades. Um, I don't see a lot of value in reading them for me. Um, I think for me, the sad part is just sort of wondering where things go from here, since generally speaking, we are only two months in and so much has already changed. And I've heard plenty of chatter that I I think this is the business plan they are committed to there, and I don't know that really – they are going to steer from this course until the thing is I either run into the ground or, you know, I mean, maybe I I don't think it's going to succeed, but, you know, I I think this is what, how they're going to run it until they are no longer running it. And, um, I, I do think that probably means fewer names that people recognize and like to read working there eventually. Um, and that's a really sad thing and it's, it's just bizarre. I, that's all there is to say, um, And you really hate to see it. And I really, I mean, just to keep, you mentioned it, I keep hammering back on it, the copy desk situation. I mean, those people work, those are the people whose names no one knows, except for, you know, you and me and people who worked at Sports Illustrated, but they were the reason the magazine was so great. And, you know, why you didn't find, I mean, it read so beautifully. I mean, writers, we all try our best to write with perfect style, but that doesn't happen for even, you know, the best of us. Um, And those people worked crazy hours to make the magazine this beautiful product with this wonderful, strong voice. And I i don't know how you do that without them.
2: It's well said. I mean, to be sort of blunt and more, co- more coarse, you kind of show your ass as a management group if you get rid of the institutional knowledge of the Sports Illustrated copy department. Because anyone who's done any kind of semblance of... Uh, time there or sort of understands what the DNA of Sports Illustrated was would understand just how important that group was and not just sort of line editing stories but closing stories uh, saving writers in terms of certain facts just knowing the history of the style and the magazine it's they're basically irreplaceable so that really in a way tells you sort of at least in my opinion everything you want to know about the Maven and you said something that uh, totally hits home with me. I'm not going to mention the writer, but it's a very, very well-known writer uh, who's had many, many Sports Illustrated bylines over the years. And we were talking not too long ago, and this person continues to read the website, will continue to read the magazine. And I was telling this person that I really struggle because on the one hand, I want to support the people who are still there and people I worked with. And, and there's, you know there's a ton of talent there still. But, I, I, Joan, I I have massive struggles clicking on a story there and massive struggles just giving the Maven Group any of my money or attention. Now, I guess if I click, I mean, I'm not buying anything. So I guess I could sort of, I guess, yeah. you know what I mean? In a way, I could probably just rationalize, well, I'm just, it's just a click. It's just going to help the individual story. But it still feels like I'm adding to their content mill bottom line. So I, I'm... Uh, I I will say I have struggled with this massively. Like I don't oftentimes know what to do in terms of like there's a story at Sports Illustrated that I'm sure is good. It's certainly by a writer I respect and like I feel awful about clicking on it because I feel like I'm giving in. I will say I did read Jenny Rentiss's Megan Rapinoe Sportsman of the Year story. I thought it was great. Yes. But I, I'm, I l- literally every single story I'm like that, which is a pretty horrible thing to feel for someone who worked there for 19 years.
4: It definitely is a weird sensation and I mean you whether it's Sports Illustrated or something else you know you want to stay informed I'm sure I mean that's how I feel that's how you feel and there's good work being done there and you want to be part of the conversation in this industry and you know sometimes I'm not part of the conversation about a great piece because I haven't read it yet and it's like oh am I just being petty and I probably am again but it's how I've chosen to do things I was laughing uh, on Friday, I was wrapping up a freelance piece, and I was actually referencing a story from the vault um, for some context, because some of the events in the in the piece happened a, a very long time ago, and this story had a bunch of good context, and it was actually kind of helping me fact-check some of the things people had told me. I was kind of referencing the story in the vault to make sure, all right, what I was told by this person lines up with this story that was written about this event 40 years ago. And, um I was laughing. I was like, "Well, I guess I'm breaking my rule now, aren't I? But it serves me now because I need this for this freelance piece. Uh, so, you know, obviously rules are meant to be broken, I guess. But it is tough, and you want to support. You want to support your friends.
2: Yeah, I was gonna say I do the same. If there's like, you know, something like, uh, you know, every week at the Athletic on Mondays, I'll put like the best things I read that week. And if it's like, if there's something sort of that would fit in Sports Illustrated, I'm probably gonna link it. But again, it just I always feel like. It's a pretty horrible, awful feeling to even have to sort of go down um, go down that road. All right, let's finish on uh, a little bit of a more optimistic. And maybe it's not optimistic, Ben, because we're going to talk college football. Uh, but uh, um, how much—so, you know, throughout your time at Sports Illustrated, Joan, so often it would seem like you were working uh, on-site on a Saturday. So I'm not sure how much college football you, like, literally watched on television. So now that you've had a li- probably, I would imagine, maybe a little bit more Saturdays where you can— view the product, uh, you know, someone who writes about the stuff and uh, has covered media for a while now. Like, I'm, I'm always curious, like, how people process college football, not college football, how people process uh, sports on television. So for you, what has it been like? Do you like, as a general rule, do you like the product? Do you think it's a good product? Do you think um, it's very open-ended? I'll take any of your sort of thoughts on just maybe seeing the product differently now through television as opposed to being in a game.
4: Yeah. Um, that's, it's interesting. Cause I have, it's one of the, one of the fun things about this fall has been the ability to go sit at a bar on a Saturday for five hours with my friends and watch college football, which is not something I was, I've done in, I mean, a very long time. Um, and when I was at SI, you know, I was at games some weekends, other weekends. If I was home, I was usually tasked with watching a certain game would be kind of how we did it. If I, if we, if we had no one at a big game, they would assign, they would say, hey, Joan, watch this game. You know, hey, Andy, watch this game. Hey, Ross, watch this game. And we were all kind of in our little silo of this is the game we're going to kind of watch today. And if necessary, put some thoughts on the Internet about. So it wasn't the full college football viewing experience that you get by, you know, being sort of a normal citizen, going to the local bar, having a burger and a beer and watching, you know, watching the game. And it's it's been fun. I From my perspective, it's been a great product to watch. Um, I think it's been really fun for me this year to kind of dive into watching college football from the perspective of a fan of the sport rather than a writer, because this season was a little bit different. We didn't have Alabama, um, you know, as the shoe-in. We didn't have, in some sense, the shoe-ins were Ohio State and LSU, it seems like, which are two teams that have, I mean, in LSU's case, not been relevant this far into the season since I started covering college football, certainly. Um, So my perspective on the college football broadcast product, just the product as a fan has always kind of been that I've found it somewhat boring down the stretch because you know what's going to happen. And therefore, you know, you have to really engage with games that you know, well, this is a great product. This game is a fun game. These are two well-matched teams. you have got a a wonderful broadcast team in the booth, but, these teams are both probably eliminated from playoff contention. And certainly this year, it wasn't like there were 12 teams vying for the four spots in mid November, but there were teams vying for those spots. And there was a broader spectrum of games to watch that had some, you know, potential impact. And that was really fun for me. Um, as someone just watching from the bar, from my couch, um, you know, I'm going to watch Minnesota, you know, I'm going to watch LSU, which LSU has just been so fun from start to finish. Um, Thinking, and then you get down the line and, okay, well, Alabama's out of it. But, oh, what if everyone loses and then Alabama suits back in? There's always that. But it, it's nice to get some fresh blood this year, I think. And I think that really helps the product in a way that, you know, you can't control if you're, you know, if you're Fox um, or ESPN or anyone on September 1st. You can control only what you can control, and then the rest of it's left up to the structure of the playoff and the committee and the fact that this has been a rather sort of static group of teams for a while. Um, so I've enjoyed that.
2: Yeah, LSU's been awesome. They're so much fun to watch. Uh, having it's the only SEC game I've ever been to in my life. Alabama at LSU, so I have a like an affinity for LSU just because I yeah just because I happen to see it live. Uh, Minnesota has been a very very cool story, and um, and yeah, I mean you know the, here's the th- sort of thing, and I wanted to get your perspective on this as somebody who covered it covered college football far closer than I ever have, is that um, it's a great sport. Like it's really fun. To watch and the enthusiasm of the campuses are great. I think my biggest issue with college football coverage, and I think in it is specific to college football in that, in my opinion, it's the worst of this, is the deification of coaches from the broadcasters. Um, there's a there's a real um, too often, in my opinion, overarching sort of of a godding up of college football coaches. It's not to say that the players are sort of crapped on, because I think most announcers are pretty judicious in sort of recognizing that they're 18 to 22. They're not pros. But the the, the there's very rarely, certainly in broadcast, anything negative about college coaches, including college coaches who really deserve, in my opinion, uh, criticism. I'm talking about more stuff off the field than on. But I think that's my... If I had one sort of thing that I wish I could change about college football, and it's never going to change because the networks are too entw- entwined with conferences and, and programs and the NCAA, it's that part of it. It's that, you know, more than college basketball, more than even the NFL and the NBA and Major League Baseball, it's the sort of deification of, of college football coaches that, that always rubs me the wrong way on broadcast. What's I don't know if you've ever thought about that or if you have any thoughts about that, but I'd be curious.
3: That's,
4: that's a phenomenal point. And it's something we discussed, um, the kind of college football team at Sports Illustrated, in a sense, often, because you mentioned the networks, the broadcast, I think it trickles down even to, you know, writing in that there's the deification of the coaches, which certainly pervades the sport. And because of that, programs are little more than a coach in some sense. And you get this in any coverage, it's, you're not really covering Alabama, you're covering Saban, you're not covering Clemson, you're covering Davo. And there are the players, of course, and we, I think at Sports Illustrated we really tried to do great profiles, great trend pieces to get beyond the coaches. But the coach still, it, it kind of infiltrates the whole story in a lot of sense because it's just, that is what these programs are. And it's hard to separate. And as someone who came from covering the NFL, where an NFL locker room often is totally irrelevant as to who the coach is um, and coaches can change and locker room vibes can stay almost the same um, and or coaches can stay the same and there's a bunch of trades and all of a sudden a locker room goes from terrible to great or vice versa and that just isn't how college football works and that's tough um, it's tougher to connect with the The interesting for me over the past couple of years has been especially sort of the, the deification of Jabo Swinney and uh, I don't know that he is quite the the person that he is portrayed to be, whether it's, you know, after winning the national championship on the broadcast when he's kind of giddily speaking and looking like your fun uncle. I'm not sure that's who he is. And I think we've all sort of reinforced the idea that that's who he is. And then it's like, well, he'll say something about quitting the sport if players were ever paid. And you think, that's not the person I'm seeing on the broadcast. That's not the person who's being portrayed in the story I read because everyone on his team is super happy to be there and he recruited them and he's recruited this juggernaut. And it's hard to separate that, I think. And um, yeah, coach, everything coaching in college football can really sort of overshadow, I think more important storylines, you know, coaching searches, I think sometimes can loom far too large when it comes down to, well, what is the actual problem at this program and what are kids facing that go there and why are kids wanting to leave or why are kids not succeeding there? And it's sometimes not just the coach, it's sometimes bigger than that. And I think we get so focused on, all right, what's the tracker? Who's the latest? Who's going to go where? What's the, who's the rising assistant? And um, yeah, it's very pervasive.
2: Joan, is there anything uh, else you wanted to add before, uh, before I let you go today?
4: You know, I don't think so. I mean, if anybody wants me to write about sports for them, I'd love to hear. Um, I'm still definitely, you know, hoping to add to what I'm working on. And, you know, but other than that, no, it's it's unemployment has been weird, but it's, it's not it's not been terrible. And I'm very lucky to have a lot of really supportive um, former coworkers and just former colleagues in the industry who have been so great and, you know, great at Pushing work my way and also just kind of being there when I, you know, make wisecracks about no longer being a sports writer and they remind me that I am still a sports writer.
2: <laughs> uh, it, are you comfortable enough giving out some kind of contact information in the event that somebody's listening to this podcast and may want to get a hold of you?
4: Yeah. Um, my Twitter is my name, Joan Neeson, and my email um, should be in my Twitter bio, and that's probably the easiest way to find me. Um, and yeah, love to write, would love to keep doing it more. It's, been funny i didn't do a ton of writing for the first month as i just kind of figured out what i was doing and i've been settling back into writing for the last three weeks or so and it's been wow i've never taken a month off from writing kind of relearning how to do this i think so i'm getting better (laughs)
2: uh well sometimes walking away from it actually probably makes you a better writer we could all uh use that uh use that break but yeah please check out joe neeson's uh twitter page and uh if you want to uh hire a uh national caliber sports writer um she is available out there all right joan i'm going to continue to check in with you every couple of months i I will see what uh uh, i'm either going to grab mary agnan scooby axon uh i don't know if i want to tim rohan's honestly joan too nice a guy at this point i need i need more uh, controversial (laughs) figures on this podcast in terms of yeah he's too nice and he's too zen in terms of the four former people (laughs) i talked to he's very zen yeah. He's Tucson. I, I mean, helps him as a writer, but he's not bringing me downloads. So in that case, I've, I'm eliminating him from the rotation. It's just you, Mary and <laughs> Scooby right now in terms of uh, my returning group. Uh, but, um, but I wish you nothing but the best of luck. Yeah. I, as I've said before, I think you're an incredibly talented writer and I'm glad to see that some freelance uh, opportunities are happening. And if that book happens, that'd be awesome. And, uh, um, and I, I am sure it will be an incredibly cool project. All right. Joe Neeson, uh, as I mentioned before, at the top, you have her information if you are interested in uh, connecting with her, if you're someone who is a uh, editor or has uh, writing assignments. Joe and I will probably uh, reconnect with you, let's say, three or four or five months down the road, but I wish you nothing but success, and thanks again for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast.
0: I appreciate it. It
4: was great to
2: talk. All right, back in the studio, my thanks uh, to Jim Ross and to Joe Neeson for uh, two really interesting conversations. I uh, I greatly appreciate their time. If um, if you like this sort of uh, content, let me uh, go over what has been some of the previous episodes in the Sports Meeting with Richard Deitch podcast. Uh, last week, we had a roundtable with Chad Finn of the Boston Globe and Venture also the Washington Post, uh, covering a lot of different things, including uh, NBA viewership and uh, sort of the climate in the market for sports writers out there, the podcast world. Before that, a uh, a really honest, I thought, uh, particularly honest, uh, Joe Buck, who discussed a lot of things that I don't think you often hear. On a podcast with broadcasters, and then again, if these are the kind of conversations you have, please go down the list. James Andrew Miller was the podcast before that. We went pretty deep on ESPN. Um, some of the broadcasters that we've had on this podcast recently: Michael Smith of ESPN, uh, formerly of ESPN; Ian Dark and Taylor Twelman of ESPN; Adnan Verk of DAZN; Booger McFarland, the Monday Night Football broadcaster; Gus Johnson of fox sports and then obviously you can also find a lot of the roundtable media discussion like stuff the way this podcast continues is if you um leave us a review and a five-star rating uh and listen so the people at cadence 13 uh know that there's an audience out there my thanks to patrick antonetti and to molly nugent for producing this podcast my thanks to everybody at cadence 13 from chris Corkin to spencer brown to sean cherry to john McDermott, appreciate their support. Uh, no podcast next week during Christmas week. We will uh, we'll take a week off, and then uh, come up with some really uh, some cool people. I think coming up as we head towards the new year. Uh, so, regarding what whatever you celebrate, uh, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Happy Kwanzaa, Happy Holidays. I uh, appreciate the support over the last couple years for this podcast, and uh, and thank you very much for listening. This is Richard Deitch, and the next time you hear my voice, at least in terms of a live podcast, it's likely to be in 2020.
3: Have a great new year, everybody. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast.